Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. It's been a stunning reality as well as a supreme joy to study our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, where we have been now for several months as we continue to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we will be looking at verses 15 through 20 of Matthew chapter 7. And in order to get a running start at this, because this is all in the same context, I want to go back to verse 13 and just begin there and to read on through verse 20, even though we will be looking primarily at verses 15 through 20 today. Beginning in Matthew 7, verse 13, our Lord says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it for the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus has been contrasting two different kingdoms in his sermon, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. Last week, we examined verses 13 through 14, where he tells us how we are to enter into his kingdom What true conversion looks like, which is a radical departure from popular religious teaching of our day. We learned much about two gates, the narrow and the wide, that lead us to two ways, the narrow and the broad. And those ways lead to two destinations, to life and to destruction. And we learned of two groups of people, the few and the many. And I might add that if you were not here last week, I really would encourage you to get this tape because last week and this week and next week are perhaps three of the most important sermons that I've ever preached in this pulpit. And I really want you to understand this. We have learned that true conversion to the gospel of Christ is narrow. It is restrictive. It is a compressed gate. One does not come to Christ. One does not enter through that gate with ease. One does not bring with them baggage of all of all of their unconfessed sin and and just continue on with whatever lifestyle they choose. They cannot come with other people. They must enter alone. There will be intense pressure resulting from a conscious choice, a determined, purposeful decision that will require strenuous effort. On anyone that chooses to enter in. It is a gate of brokenness over sin. It is a gate of contrition. Of confessing spiritual bankruptcy. It is a gate of self-denial. Not a gate of self-fulfillment. It is a gate that counts the cost of discipleship. Where one is willing to jettison. Selfish ambitions. And make Jesus the Lord of their life. 
It is not a user friendly gate. It is not a seeker sensitive gate. Because Paul tells us in Romans 3.11 that there is no one that seeks after God. And we're told that very few people will enter this gate. They prefer the wide gate that deceptively offers the destination of eternal life. Wide, wide being contrasted with the narrow. This is the roomy gate, the spacious gate, the inclusive gate, the most attractive gate, the easy gate to get into. No striving here, no need for any kind of purposeful, conscious, strenuous effort, no mourning over sin, no groaning. This is the easy way. This is the gate that says, hey, come to Jesus and he'll give you all these good things. You come to Jesus as blesser, not as savior. Likewise, the narrow way is one of tribulation and anguish and suffering and persecution, we learned. When we declare Jesus is Lord, we declare war on the world and the battle begins. You enter the narrow gate and it may cost you everything, even your life. But the broad way knows nothing of any of this. As long as you've made some profession of faith, repeated some prayer, joined some denomination, walked some kind of an aisle, performed some religious ritual, whatever. Then you can live any way you want. And even if better yet, if you learn the right formulas, you can even learn how to manipulate God and obligate him to make you prosperous and free from all sickness, as some believe. Well, both of these options, dear friend, have their preachers. And now Jesus warns us about these preachers. And I have no doubt that some of you have been misled and perhaps don't even know it. We all must decide who is telling the truth. And in his great mercy, Jesus shows us the truth. So this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to see that Jesus draws our attention to two things. Primarily, one, the warning about false prophets and how we need to be aware of them. And then secondly, the marks of a false prophet, how you can spot them. So first of all, we look at the warning about false prophets in verse 15, Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. Now, friends, this is an admonition primarily to those who are being saved, those on that Galilean hillside that were hearing the words of Jesus and endeavoring to understand how to enter the kingdom that he has talked about. This is a warning to exercise discernment. Beware. It means to give heed to, to pay close attention to this. This is important. Wrap your mind around this issue. This is Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our Creator saying, catch this now. Beware. I want you to hear this. This is important. In other words, this is not some casual concern that I'm going to chat about here for a minute. But this is a monumental danger that requires our undivided attention. Every person that's desiring to enter through this narrow gate, you've, you've got to hear this. If you're endeavoring to travel the narrow way, you must hear this. Beware. But more importantly, in the original language, the word beware literally means to take your mind and to turn away from something. To avoid the exposure of something. And so what we're going to see is that false teaching from false teachers is not just bad theology. It is toxic theology. It is dangerous error. It is poison to the soul. 
So the Lord is saying, beware, stay away from it. Deny their teaching to even have access into your mind, lest it tear you apart as a ravenous wolf would do. You know, this is very hard in our culture. We live in a culture where, in a, in a Christian culture, where church growth is absolutely the paramount priority. I, I receive materials every week wanting me to come and attend some seminar or read some book about how to get my church to explode and grow. And there's no doubt if you do their things, it will explode and grow. But there's a difference, as I say, between a crowd and a church. And if you read their material or go to their seminars, as I have done some, just to, 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 to understand the, the error of it, you will see that what they teach is rooted in wide-gate, broad-way theology. It is heretical for the most part. It's tragic in contemporary evangelicalism We are now taught to take surveys to see how we can make the gate even wider. To make sure that we don't offend anyone. You learn to be seeker sensitive because you want to be popular to the world. A world that hates Christ. And in in a desire to be relevant to the culture. You take opinion polls and you find out what must you do to make sure that no one is in any, any way disturbed or offended With the gospel of Christ. So we begin to reinvent the message to be a message of the gospel of self-esteem versus the gospel of self-fulfillment. And ministry turns into nothing more than an exercise in social welfare where we all get together as kind of a country club. It's gotten so bad now. The gate has gotten so wide that people are embracing what's called universalism that basically means it doesn't really matter what you believe. Even if you don't believe in God, as long as you're searching for the truth, we're all going to make it to heaven. And I gave you examples of that last week. One of the most tragic illustrations of this is one that I came across and it has been it's been a very disturbing thing for me, quite frankly, because I have revered in a lot of ways the evangelist Billy Graham for years, and I still think he he has things that he can contribute to the cause of Christ, but I think he is in terrible error. And I, even though I don't hesitate to share with you what I'm about to say, I will say that the last time I shared this, a number of people left this church. Robert Schuler, a promoter of liberal self-esteem theology, the pastor at the Crystal Cathedral in, in uh, California interviewed uh, Billy Graham and he asked Billy Graham about the future of Christianity. And he asked him, what, Billy Graham, what, what do you believe will be the final makeup of the body of Christ? What will it look like? And Dr. Graham replied, and I quote, that the body would be made up from all the Christian groups around the world. Outside the Christian groups, I think he said that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not. They are members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. But he goes on to say God's purpose for this age is to call 
out a people for his name. And that is what he is doing today. Now catch this. He is calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world. They are all members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have. And they turn to the only light that they have. And I think they are saved and they are going to be with us in heaven, end quote. You see, friends, that's the broad way. That's the wide gate. Well, surprised at this, Schuler wanted to ask for clarification because certainly this would excite him because this is this is his position as well. And he said to Graham, and I quote, what what I hear you saying that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and their soul and their life, even if they have been born in darkness and have never had exposure to the Bible. Is that a correct interpretation of what you were saying? To which Billy Graham replied, yes, it is. Well, ecstatic at this, Schuler exclaimed, I am so thrilled to hear you say this. Now catch this. There is a wideness in God's mercy. To which Graham replied, yes, there is. There definitely is. Beloved, what happened to the narrow gate and the narrow way? What happened to a church that now sees it as a virtue to be tolerant of lies? Why is it now that we live in an evangelical age where the dominant theme and, and the passion of the people is to be inclusive of all faiths and to learn to dialogue with people that believe error? What has happened? Why is it that it's so important now to be popular at all cost? Why is it such an emphasis in the body of Christ to have huge churches with thousands of followers. Why is it that today we have pastors that are afraid to confront the world, afraid to offend their congregations? Why is it that today we have pastors that do not preach the whole counsel of God, that refuse to contend earnestly for the faith as we're told? Why is it that today we have congregations who resent doctrinal preaching, but thrive on 45 minutes of worship music. Why is it that we now have churches that are filled with people who have been lifelong members of a church who could not discern an orthodox doctrinal statement, much less write one? Why is it that today we have professing Christians who live lives that cannot be distinguished from those who hate Christ? Why is it today that we have churches that will not discipline sin and stand firm for the purity of the church that Christ purchased with his very blood. Why is it today that we have worship services that look more like a religious version of world wrestling than a reverent service where twice born saints are consumed by the mercy and grace of God and humbly bow before him and rejoice in all that he has done for them? How could the church of Jesus Christ become so deceived? 
Beloved, I believe that the answer is right here in this text. We have failed to heed the words of Jesus where he has told us to beware of the false teachers. They are like ravenous wolves, he says. Ravenous in the original language, a term that can also be translated as swindler. And it's used metaphorically here to describe them as men and sometimes women who will use deception to devour your money and everything you possess. Now, friends, as we will see, this is very important for you to understand. There is a continuum of false teachers ranging from what I would call the innocently ignorant. This is where I would put somebody like Billy Graham, perhaps a Sunday school teacher, a pastor. These are the people who I believe unwittingly propagate error in their endeavor to be popular and perhaps in their ignorance. But then on the other side of that continuum, there will be the calculating charlatan who consciously contrives spiritual deception in an effort to somehow make himself popular and benefit in some financial way. Typically, this is what we see on television. These are the ones that have the massive crowds that follow after them. A few years ago, Hank Hennegraaff, the Bible answer man, was, was here and we had a chance to spend time together. And he wrote an excellent book, by the way, Counterfeit Revival. I would encourage you all to read that. He's had much opportunity to spend time with this latter group, this the, the calculating charlatans, as I would call them. And, and in his endeavor to, in, in endeavor to expose them. And he's been successful in exposing them in many ways. And he told me, he, as we were talking about it, he said, Dave, the best way I can describe what's going on in many of these circles is that it's tantamount to a Christian drug cartel. These people are making millions of dollars off of the scam. And he said that many of them will privately admit that they know that their whole ministry is a con. They don't believe any of it. But they can sucker the masses. And certainly my own personal experience over the years, I've counseled many of them, many of them that you would know, certainly many in the music industry, many artists, as well as many of these kind of famous televangelist type of people. And I've seen that there are many of those people who know nothing of Christ. They don't love the Lord, but they've learned how to manipulate ignorant masses of desperate people. By winsomely presenting the wide gate Broadway theology. The calculating charlatans are always on the prowl for new victims. Peter warns in Second Peter 2 and verse 12 that they are unreasoning animals who deceive unstable souls, luring them into their jaws through the lust of the flesh. In other words, they're going to tell people what they want to hear. My, wouldn't that, wouldn't my life as a pastor be easier if, if all I did was just stand up here and tell you everything you want to hear? Yes, sir. No, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Oh, no, ma'am. I agree. I, oh, oh, no. I, oh, boy. Yeah, anything goes around here. I, I, I certainly don't want you to be offended. I certainly don't want to say anything that might rock your little theological boat. Yes, this is Outback Baptist here. No rules. Just right. Let's all just be happy. Let's sing another chorus. But, beloved, I don't answer to you. I answer to the Lord, and you know that. False teachers have been a danger throughout history. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5 and verse 30, 
An appalling thing and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. Why do people love it so? Well, Jesus answered that. In John 8, verse 43, he says, why do you not understand what I what I am saying? And then he answers it. It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. In other words, I'm not telling you what you want to hear. Jesus goes on to say, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear me because you are not of God. Beloved, the vast majority of people in the world today and even in churches today can't stand the truth. The truth about their sin and the inability, their inability to save themselves and the eternal judgment that awaits those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way. Romans 1, verse 18, we are told that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those texts in Romans 1 will go on to tell us that the unregenerate, they know about God. But they refuse to submit to him. Romans 3.11, we read again that no one seeks after God. You see, man's heart is totally depraved. He will never choose to worship God apart from some quickening work, some regenerating work of the Spirit of God. That will cause them to see their sin and see the Savior. And in the context of that, they will enter through that narrow gate and proceed down the narrow way. And that is a supernatural work of divine grace and that glorious truth of regeneration when we are born again of the Spirit of the living God. Churches today are filled with unbelievers who hate the truth of divine law and judgment and our sin and our violation of the law. In 2 Timothy 3, or chapter 4 and verse 3, we read that people are going to search out teachers that will tell them what they want to hear, that will tickle their ears, the text says, because they hate God's insistence upon this narrow gate and this narrow way. And as a result, that text goes on to say that they will turn away their ears from the truth. In other words, in resentment, they will say, I don't like that. I don't want that. And then the text goes on to say, and they will turn aside to myths that are taught by the false teachers. And literally, that text means that they will lose their ability to discern the truth as the myths begin to captivate them. And they will be swallowed up in those deceptions without even realizing that it has happened to them. That is the judicial sentencing of those who hear the truth and reject it with impunity. You see, friends, if you play with the fire of deception, you will eventually be consumed by it. That's why Jesus said, don't let your mind give heed to that. Beware of it. Beware of false teachers. God told Isaiah in chapter 30 to address the people of Israel. In verse 9, he says, for this is a rebellious people, false sons. 
sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Certainly Satan is quick to propagate every imaginable distortion of divine truth that will appeal to a selfish heart. So Jesus says, beware, learn how to recognize a false teacher and run, run from what they are saying. In Matthew 24, the Lord spoke about many false prophets that will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You see, friends, this is a warning for you and for me. Beloved, if you if you think that Jesus admonition here doesn't include you, you have been deceived. And you're deceiving yourself. You see, every one of us in this room has had some experience with a false teacher. Maybe they've been the innocently ignorant. Maybe it's been a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a grandparent or a pastor. Maybe you've gone to a seminar. But friends, it is commonplace in most revivals that I've been to. You will hear a wide gate, Broadway theology that is presented. It's common in most evangelistic crusades, not all. It is certainly the theology of virtually all contemporary Christian music. Not all of it, but a lot of it, most of it. And certainly it is indicative of the lifestyles of many of these people. The majority of musicians, the majority of televangelists. Their pride, immorality, and greed is legendary. Almost every popular Christian magazine and periodical and, frankly, the, the wide-gate Broadway theology is at the heart of virtually every single best-selling Christian book on the market and has been for the last 30 years. You see, remember now, the narrow gate is not popular. Few people are going to find that. And beloved, you're a fool if you think that, for example, the Christian publishing industry is going to publish anything that only a few are going to want. Because it's driven by numbers and money. So what we've got to do is publish the wide gate and the Broadway types of books. Now, please don't think that Jesus warning here was simply to the most gullible and naive contingent of Christianity who who follow after the most ridiculous of religious gurus. This is very important for you to understand. What we're going to see is that this warning is not necessarily a warning to avoid the most obvious predators in our pulpits. You know, the, the Benny Hens and the Paul and Jan Crouches and the Creflo Dollars and the T.D. Jakeses and those type of people. This is a warning, on the other hand. To beware of those false purveyors of heresy that are far more difficult to spot. Because what we're going to see is he is not describing here a tree. And he goes on to talk about the fruits in the tree. He is not describing a tree that is obviously diseased and shriveled up. He is not describing a, a tree that only the most undiscerning would come to and say, oh, I want to eat from this tree. That's not what he's describing. Nor is he describing a good-looking tree that is bearing rotten fruit, and it's obvious to most people that only a fool would eat that stuff. But rather, what Jesus is describing, dear friends, 
are false teachers that are so incredibly well-respected that they are likened to a tree that appears to be good and appears to bear good fruit. It, it, It looks good, it feels good, it smells good, it tastes good, but it is poison. That's what Jesus is referring to. This should not surprise us because Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. A number of years ago, there was a man by the name of Jim Jones. He had an extensive following of people. He had what was called the People's Temple Christian Church. It was filled with many people who professed Christ, and no doubt some of them were truly born again. Most of the people were from Christian backgrounds. They were looking for a higher level of Christian life. They wanted a new level of communion, a new level of fellowship, of ministry. And Jim Jones offered them all of these things. He had amassed a huge following from around the world, but one day approximately 1,000 of his most faithful followers joined him in a remote settlement in the jungles of Guyana, South America, a place named Jamestown. And here they were convinced that their shepherd would lead them to a new level of spirituality. It was a good tree and the fruit looked good. Little did they know that he was a ravenous wolf with the attire of a shepherd. The emissary of Satan preaching a wide-gate, broadway theology that led them to destruction. And as you will recall, and I still remember the images on television, there a thousand people committed mass suicide. In his book, Deceived, Mel White analyzes the amazing process of deception that occurred with that particular group of people, and he offered these insights, and I quote, Jim Jones knew how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes and homes for the retarded. He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center. He provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons, do miracles, and heal. But on the other hand, the author goes on to write, we find all the marks of a false prophet. He promoted himself through the use of celebrities, a very common vehicle for false prophets to gain credibility. He manipulated the press. He wanted certain favorable stories. He was big on playing the press. Then he goes on to write, he used the language and the forms of faith to gain his power, end quote. John MacArthur, another capable and careful observer of this situation, wrote, and I quote, Jim Jones created a warm, purportedly Christian community, but he replaced Jesus Christ as the authority and more and more garnered loyalty to himself. He began demanding money for every service he offered and was preoccupied with sex in both its normal and deviant forms. He would lie convincingly convincingly about anything in order to gain an advantage or make a desired impression. Before his bizarre death, he had managed to gain the admiration and praises of countless church leaders, governors, senators, congressmen, and even the president of the United States. End quote. Beloved, 
Our Lord's warning is to each of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are committed to the purity of the gospel. You see, we must remain forever vigilant to discern false teachers. The New Testament is full of this. Paul warned in Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And as he departed, the Apostle Paul urgently warned the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves. In other words, from within the church, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And we're warned also in Ephesians 5 and verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. And Paul reminds us in Colossians 2a, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And friends, I, I would encourage all of you to take inventory of what you allow in your minds, both through print and electronic media. Beware of false teachers. They are ingenious. I have to be, I have to walk a fine line of not spending too much time in error, but spending enough time so that I can warn you of it. And I will confess to you, there are times where I read heresy and I am absolutely astounded at how clever it is. And were it not for the Spirit of God and His, His illuminating work and discerning work in my heart, and the written, revealed Word of God, I would, as well as you, be deceived. Well, what are we to look for? How can we discern false teachers and their heresies? Well, here we begin to understand the marks of a false prophet. Notice in verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. I hope you understand. We're not going to get through all of this today. But we're going to begin to understand the marks of a false prophet. This is so important for you to begin to really grab a hold of. And I, I'm just passionate about this, that you see this. Well, the first mark will be that they will impersonate a true shepherd. They will impersonate a true shepherd. Let me explain this. Prophets in those days were easily identified by what they wore. If you read, for example, about Elijah or John the Baptist, you know that they deliberately would wear coarse, kind of hairy, uncomfortable uh, garments, robes made of animal clothing, sometimes camel hair. And this would, of course, be a symbol to the rest of the world of their preoccupation with the message of God with no concern for their own comfort. They wouldn't be in the silk suits and the... Limousines of that day. And what these false prophets would do would wear the clothing of a true prophet so that they can impersonate a true prophet. And you have to begin with the outside. 
You've got to look like the real thing. In fact, Zechariah speaks of this very thing in Zechariah 13 and verse 4. He describes false prophets as those who put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. Well, likewise, shepherds could be easily recognized by their attire. And I'm not talking about shepherds used metaphorically as a pastor here. I'm talking about guys that took care of sheep. Just like cowboys today, you look at a cowboy, you can tell that guy takes care of cows, kind of by what he wears. Likewise, shepherds could be easily recognized by what they wore. They would wear wool clothing made from sheep. Now, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to here with them wearing sheep's clothing. Here's the point. Just as false prophets would deceive people by wearing the garments of a prophet, so too false shepherds will disguise themselves. Now catch this, not as a wolf wearing a sheepskin pretending to be another sheep. Like you go down to the bookstore and you see this wolf, he's walking around. You can tell he's got somebody's put, uh, you know, some sheep clothing on the top of it. And he's walking in amongst the sheep and he's going to eat them up. That's not what Jesus is referring to. That, by the way, that, that is indicative of bad, bad exegesis, bad theology. For one thing, how in the world could that, sh- that wolf have ever cut up that sheep and put that garment on him? I, I never could really understand that. But that's not what he's referring to. What he's saying here is that these ravenous wolves will impersonate true shepherds. They will wear the garments. They will look like on the outside a shepherd that takes care of the sheep. And what does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd comes along and, and gains the trust of the sheep. Uh, the, the shepherd will lead the sheep and feed the sheep and protect the sheep and love the sheep. Beloved, what the Lord is saying here is that false shepherds will approach the sheep as a friend, not as a foe. They will gain their trust with kindness, with a winsome personality, with the appearance of honesty. And maybe they will be full of virtue. Maybe they will live morally and upright lives. Remember, they're going to be very difficult to spot. And to further enhance their deception, They may have been ordained by other churchmen. Maybe they've been given degrees from a seminary. Maybe they appear to be orthodox in their doctrine. Now, that's when it gets really tricky. They will use biblical terminology. They will speak Christianese. They will be evangelistic. They will demonstrate a sincere desire to see people come to Jesus. They will help the poor. They will visit the sick. Many, if not most of them, are deceived themselves by the father of lies, and they are utterly convinced of their own sincerity. In fact, they would argue to the death that their message is biblical, when in fact it is wide-gate Broadway theology. They've been taught the subtle lies of Satan for so long. After all, this is what mom and daddy taught me. This is what old Brother Jones taught me. I love Brother Jones. I sat under his preaching for years and years. You're going to tell me that I'm wrong? My entire family believes this. All of my memories, all of my traditions, all of my culture, my very identity has been defined by these beliefs. And you're going to tell me that it's wrong? So many people have been utterly devoted to falsehood. And many of them are too ignorant to know they're ignorant. 
And many are too indoctrinated to even question their beliefs, much less examine their hearts. And many of them have thousands of devotees. What are you going to do now? Stand up in a pulpit and say, you know, for all these years I was wrong? One pastor I was talking with recently told me tearfully that he was in a church and in a denomination that was very strongly Arminian in its theology. And he said, I finally read some books and understood the scriptures in ways that I never had before. And I began to understand the doctrines of grace. I began to understand the doctrine of the total depravity of man and the doctrines of election and predestination. And here I am, a leader in the denomination with a large church. He said, you know, Dave, for two years, my wife and I kept the whole thing quiet until our conscience couldn't couldn't bear it anymore. And finally, we began to preach the truth and we were asked to leave. Beloved, evangelical churches today are filled with ravenous wolves disguised as shepherds. They're pastors and missionaries and evangelists and professors and Christian counselors and psychologists, seminar speakers, authors, musicians. And most of them are clueless with what they're teaching. And at the risk of sounding hideously arrogant, I say that with utmost confidence. That's an important note here. Why is it that a wolf is ravenous? Why is it that they are ferocious? I've had numerous encounters with wolves over the years in the mountains. I've shot several of them, had to hunt them. I've watched she-wolves come when a pack of wolves, when they come to a carcass, all of the hungry wolves will stand around until the she-wolf has first had her fill. I've watched she-wolves teach their young to kill animals even when they weren't hungry just because they have to do this. Why do they do that? Because they're wicked? Because they're demonic? No, it's because they're hungry. Because that's just the way they are. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. A wolf's got to eat. They're a carnivore. They eat herbivores. It's the way God intended it. And here's the point with this. Most false shepherds that teach wide gate, broad way theology are simply doing what comes natural to them. Most of them are not intentionally wicked. Oh, certainly there are some that are. We've talked about those. Most are not the calculating charlatan who consciously contrives some spiritual deception for personal gain. Instead, most are on the other end of that continuum. continuum. They're the innocently ignorant who unwittingly propagate error because it seems like the natural thing to do. And it's so much more nice. You can be so much more popular. You read in John 6.65, you read that as soon as the Lord preached about the doctrine of grace and that nobody can come to him apart from the Father, the doctrine of election, the very next verse says that most of his disciples left him. But beloved, while they may be unwitting in their deception, their message is exceedingly dangerous. Because it rips and tears away at innocent sheep who are being led to the slaughter of divine judgment because they have believed the lie. Please understand the distinction here. Indeed, the worst of these impersonators have been victimized, as 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He goes on to say they are liars that are seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. And certainly there is a category of false shepherds who are purely con men in it for, as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, too, sordid gain just for money. Certainly there are the worst of the worst, as 2 Peter 2 19 says they are slaves of corruption, men who eventually will show their true colors when it becomes obvious that they are exploiting other people, as Peter says, with false words. He describes them in verse 14 of Second Peter 2. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never cease from sin. Their hearts are trained in greed and so on. But friends, most are pastoral deceivers who are morally upright. They are dedicated to Christian service. They are pillars in their church, in their community, in their denomination. And they nor their sheep have any idea that they're preaching lies. That's the hideous danger of it all. And they are horribly offended if you even suggest that in some cases they possess a dead faith that cannot save. And their message is spurious, leading people down the broad way that leads to destruction. Certainly that was the reaction of the Pharisees and the scribes. While some are ravenous wolves impersonating a shepherd, and they are evil men and impostors, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.13, who proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Others are well-meaning. Some, perhaps many, even regenerate, even though I think most of them are unsaved. But yet they're blind to their own pride, often slaves to their lust. They desire to please people. They don't want to offend anyone, and certainly I don't either. But it becomes much more important to be inclusive and non-offensive than to be obedient and preach the word in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not. And many are either afraid to speak the truth or they're ignorant of it. These are described in verses 22 and verses 23 or through 23 of Matthew 7 in our text. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now, mind you, the conscious charlatan, you know, he's not going to say that. He knows he's a con man. But there are going to be others who are absolutely flabbergasted that they're standing before God in judgment, having done all these religious things in utmost sincerity. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? In other words, did did, did we not preach the truth in your name? They thought it was the truth. And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And certainly many people who do these so-called miracles believe in their mind that they're actually doing these things. When in fact it's either Satan that's doing the work or it's some sleight of hand. Or some deceptive response from a person who wishes that now they don't have the pain anymore or whatever. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Beloved, the first mark of a false shepherd is shrewd deception. He will impersonate a true shepherd. And as the text says, they they will come to you. In other words, they will seek a following. They will desire an audience. They will want a platform. They will want to pastor a church or lead a seminar or write a book or have counselees or have a fan club with their with their music 
or they'll want people to read the articles that they write. Basically, what they will do is they will win the confidence and love of unsuspecting, undiscerning sheep within a religious community. And these are the hardest ones to see. But Jesus wants us to discern them, to see them so we can beware. So the second mark and the most important mark. Will be that he will preach wide gate and live on the broad way. He will preach the wide gate and he will live on the broad way. That's why Jesus says in verses 16 through 20, you will know them by their fruits. Next week, I will go into great detail as to what the Lord means in this regard. It's an extremely important sermon and extremely important information for each of us. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, these are sobering realities and we thank you for the clarity of your word. And yet, Lord, this is such a such a terribly unpopular message. Lord, we have missed the mark with respect to the doctrines of salvation for so long. It's little wonder that we're in the mess that we're in in our religious community. But, well, Lord, we thank you that it is not I, it is not us that build the church. It is you that will build your church. And God, we praise you that by your grace, nothing, not even the gates of death will be able to prevail against it. So, Lord, with great confidence, we again come to you and seek your face and cry out to you saying, oh, Lord, may your gospel go forth with great power. Lord, as we endeavor to share our faith, to unleash the gospel of Christ on our friends and family, Lord, I pray that it will happen with great, great power and that many will be saved. And Lord, I pray especially for those that might be within the sound of my voice that do not know Christ as Savior. Oh, Lord, how I cry out to you on their behalf. Lord, I pray that they will agonize before you and they will squeeze through that narrow gate that you will open for them. I pray that today will be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. Lord, help these great truths to begin to find root in our hearts that they might bear fruit, that we might be a discerning people. And that in great love and great passion for the gospel of Christ and because we love the souls of men, we might stand and say, thus saith the Lord, that you might be honored and that we might be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His precious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.